Basements and beaches, the unofficial gold standard of treatment. Thank you listeners for tuning into the trailer for Talking Addiction and Recovery podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and this podcast is a follow-up to the book I wrote called Addiction and Recovery. I am an independent clinical supervisor, clinical substance abuse counselor, and licensed professional counselor in the state of Wisconsin. In this profession, the opportunity to learn and become educated is never short, and the ongoing venture of gaining wisdom to help others is definitely a passion I possess. This is where I get to share that information with you and invite guests to share their experience and work. In this podcast, we discuss issues related to addiction, recovery, mental health, counseling, treatment, and several other areas. We discuss alcohol, drugs, gambling, gaming, pornography, and other behaviors that impacts the lives of people I work with, the individuals in their lives, and the community as well. Listen as we talk about these issues because when we don't talk about them and the silence grows, the worse it becomes. Talking about them continues to bring them into the light, which is our best way of addressing these issues and ultimately helping those who are impacted. You can find the podcast on social media with Instagram at Talking Addiction and Recovery, and Facebook page with Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. You can send emails to ask questions, provide feedback, or inquire about being a guest at TalkingAddictionAndRecovery at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, and with every episode you listen to, I hope you walk away learning something. There are treatment programs that look like multi-million dollar resorts, and others that look like a plain old residential home. While some look like state-of-the-art medical facilities and others look like convenience stores in a strip mall. The need for treatment programs and facilities is evident. Whether treatment is participating in a group counseling session in a basement with limited windows or doing yoga on a sunset beach, this episode dives into the foundations needed for establishing the unofficial gold standard of treatment. There are several different types of treatment programs and Despite all the different types, there are not enough for what is needed. If you if you ever want to look at the discrepancy between, you know, like a need for treatment and availability, you know, gambling is a great example that highlights it. You know, gambling has been a need for those who experience problems with gambling, um, and especially those who have gambling use disorders. You combine that in general, and that's about three percent of the population. And, you know, is, is that the majority of the population who gambles? You know, there's, there's a lot of people that do gamble. Does that mean everyone's going to have a problem gambling or gambling use disorder? Absolutely not. Is it devastating for those who do have a problem? Absolutely. And, you know, it's an area where if I were to send someone right now to like a residential for gambling, specifically or looking for a provider who can do that specialty the options are limited and overall the amount of people who need treatment and the amount that is available is not adequate enough and you know it's been something that's been going on for years there's things that have been going on in relation to substance use for a while where there was um, shortages in needs we're seeing that now with 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 mental health, you know, more recently, you know, so we, we need more treatment programs and availability for people to get 
help for their substance use, you know, alcohol use, other issues. And we're seeing that greater need for mental health services as well. And there was such a Prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of focus to increase the awareness of mental health and encourage people to see a therapist and go to therapy, and we got to look at that. And with that happening now, you hear people having uh, to wait to get into a mental health therapist even to get in for a, a session, not not just like a psychiatrist. And psychiatrists have been a challenge with availability for for several years there's been a shortage and finding out it would take a few months to possibly get in to see one finding out if you miss one appointment you not might not be able to get back in at all just because there's so much of a need for for current uh patients so you know with all this going on there's so many areas where we could say this person needs help this individual with their alcohol use needs help this person with their Drug use needs help, someone with pornography, technology, gambling, um, adolescence, mental health, couples, workplace stuff. I mean, all, all sorts of areas we could, we could point and say we need more help and we need more services. When it comes to addiction treatment, it, it definitely has its own set of challenges, just like other types of issues. And the, the topic of this discussion in this episode, isn't about all the challenges associated with the treatment, but really the focus is on the the standards of treatment. You know, what makes a good treatment program? How do I know if this is the right program for me? How do I know if this is the right program I'm trying to find for my loved one? And there are several resources that can be used to help determine, you know, like that quality of, of care that you're looking for. And some of those things that are, you know, measurable. Uh, SAMHSA has a really great publication that is called "What Is Substance Abuse Treatment?" a booklet for families, and it's it's good because it's for family members of people living with substance use disorders, and it answers questions about like what is substance use disorder symptoms, but also different types of treatment. What does recovery look like? Uh, Richard Capriola, who was a guest on a podcast episode about child and adolescent substance use has an entire chapter in his book devoted to helping people identify important characteristics and qualities of a substance use treatment. I've told some people already about that and said, when you look into a place, when you go to a place, use that as like a field guide, as a resource list of things to ask, um, what to look for, and all sorts of things. Um, with being here in Wisconsin, one of the ones that I have often referred to for for people in this state is the Wisconsin Department of Health Services has a section on their website called Substance Use Care and Coverage. And they have identified like these five signs of quality treatment. And they encourage people to use these questions to help decide about the quality of a treatment provider and, and the different services offered. And looking at the the range of services a quality program would have, their their list has five main signs, which is accreditation, medication, evidence based practices, families, and supports. So it's a good area 
to reference and look at as far as what am I looking at for having a quality treatment program. And as someone that you know provides counseling, that, that works in a treatment program, that does clinical supervision for it, it's important that I don't shy away from accreditation. I don't shy away from uh, you know, state in in other regulatories to come in and and check things because that's that's what's needed to make sure that you're running a quality treatment program. So one of the main differences with everything is what what I call the two L's, the looks and the location. You know, some look like resorts where they're located in mountain landscape um, or ocean views, while others look like a home or an apartment complex, you know, located in a small neighborhood. Some look like a typical office building like that of a, a dentist or like a physician's office located in like a highly populated city. And others look like they're just another store in a strip mall located in a a small town and biases and stigmas definitely exist towards different treatment programs. And sometimes it can be all based on how it looks and where it's located. It's unfortunate because how it looks and where it's located is not going to provide you with the entire picture of the quality of services being offered. However, it could deter you enough to even look into it or to call or to find more out about it or to go there and see what it looks like. So it's not enough to give you the full picture of the quality of treatment, but it it could be enough that deters people from finding out about what it has. And there were two different programs I worked in earlier in my career that did not have all the bells and whistles that would draw someone into wanting to stay there. It's not like going to uh, a website looking for a hotel and looking at all the pictures, accommodations, the pool, the fitness center. It, it doesn't look like that for some programs, some do have sort of that presentation when you look them up online or go to their website and see things. Uh, You know, when I was working with adolescents at a group home, it was located in a small neighborhood and you wouldn't even think it was a, a substance use program. It looked just like any other house. It, it had one basketball hoop. I remember they, we didn't want the kids dunking on it. And I know like right away, the idea is like safety, want people safe. But the the truth of it is no one wanted anyone dunking on it due to fear that it would break and then we would be out a basketball hoop for a while because there wasn't just easy money to be like, just go buy another one, go get another one. It had a small billiard table in the basement and a few dumbbells to work out. I know when we were looking at ways of keeping them, you know, sort of engaged in, in some some wreck time and some things like that, we looked at donating. Um, I donated an old 
small PlayStation 2 of mine. I mean, that was the... That was the bell. <laughs> um, back when I did that, you know, we did group counseling in my office. There wasn't, like, a different group room or anything like that. It was done in my office. Um, there was a small living room area, a kitchen table where they ate and did schoolwork. There wasn't, like, a separate study area or anything like that. And two rooms per bed. Um, you know, we struggled to get updates at one point. We had to paint the entire house by ourselves. I remember doing that with some some coworkers of mine. Um, you know, it wouldn't look like a five diamond of treatment programs. And after that, I moved into working at a halfway house where 14 adult men stayed and they shared one kitchen you know one laundry room one small workout area next to a laundry room where if you were my height of about six feet or taller you'd have to sometimes duck your way around to make sure you didn't hit your head on the the wooden boards uh there was a little living rooms on the top floor and and they shared two beds to a room and, and there was the the basement where we did group we did a group in the basement in one room with 14 adults uh including myself as a group facilitator when we expanded not in size of the treatment program but in how many people we could treat it became 16 adult men in the basement along with myself as a group facilitator so 17 of us sitting in in chairs there's a table in there a whiteboard um no no window right there either so you know this is what it it looked like so if you would have put this up on a to rent an apartment buy a home <laughs> go to a hotel it would probably be one that you would look at and by the looks of it and maybe where it was located like this isn't what i need this isn't what i want maybe this isn't a good quality program and I remember when I was working with a, a client, his girlfriend was also in treatment at the same time. And her counselor reached out to me about wanting to do a, a joint session. And we decided to go where she was staying. And it was hidden, but a luxurious treatment program. It was gated off. And I actually, when we pulled in, I thought I mistook it for a mansion when I pulled in the driveway only to find out that that was the driveway for the the program. And the program was identified as a, a, a world-class treatment located on luxurious grounds. And it, it looked like a resort, you know, a spa-type place where you could come to relax and receive special treatment. You, you wouldn't think by the looks of it, it was a treatment program, you know, so from, from basements to beaches, you can never tell what a, a treatment program fully looks like. You know, sometimes the bells and whistles can appear as if this is, this has everything you need while another place that might be mistaken for a, a vacant building or a room from the coming to America scene can 
appear as if it's like hopeless. Like this is how do people get better here? And the important lesson in this podcast is the looks and location are important. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't tell the whole story. What a treatment program can provide is essential. You know, you want to feel safe, taken care of, and that you are in an environment in which you can get the help you need and be successful. You need it located in areas where people need treatment, where they can get the treatment, uh, in areas where you are welcome, and located in areas where people, you know, might be able to get away in order to recover and eventually return. So it could be far away from where they live. I'm not saying those are not effective or not helpful. You know, sometimes it's definitely needed, but there's also a point where people return. So it's important to look at the qualities in treatment, regardless of how it looks and where it's located. So despite the two L's, and I'm going to give you five pillars, so to speak, that I believe are important for a solid treatment program. Now, before we dive into them, I want to make one thing like very clear. It's, it's not easy to know what you are going to get out of treatment when you first come in. You know, despite what you might have read on a website or from what word of mouth tells you, which is very popular when it comes to hearing about different treatment programs, or even after you've gone through the entire admission process, it's difficult to really know what you're going through and how the, the program is until you really start your treatment. I, I usually compare it to like a hotel because, you know, once you get to the hotel, you kind of get comfortable, you know, look for where things are, how, how it is. After a short while, you kind of know what to expect from the hotel, you know, outside of some crazy thing happening, but you, you kind of know what to expect from your stay there. With treatment, it doesn't work that way. You know, so many things happen, so many things come up. You know, when someone comes in for the admission process, they're not in the necessarily best state of mind, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, to really digest everything that's been told to them. And sometimes they're just trying to get help. They're just trying to get in the door. And I, I understand that. Um, I really do, that it's not something easy to do. I, it's it's difficult to really know what you're going through and what treatment's all going to be until you start experiencing it. And it's sort of like in, in Happy Gilmore. Here's, here's another one of my good movie references here. It's like when, when Adam Sandler takes his grandmother to the nursing home and everything's to be you know, so pretty, the staff seems amazing, and then Happy leaves and Ben Stiller comes in and, and gives you kind of a more accurate depiction of what it's like to be staying there. And I believe everyone deserves an opportunity, even multiple opportunities to seek help for their substance use, uh, you know, other addictive behaviors, you know, mental health, you know, family, couples, all that type of stuff. And I also believe people deserve to be treated in the most humane ways possible. By going through these five pillars of like a solid treatment foundation, 
you know, they can be asked prior to going into a program. They could really be evaluating you after you have started, but it is, it is a challenge. It's not as easy as when we look at deciding to select other services that we do in other parts of life. So I've got four that really build into the fifth one. And the fifth one is, is a really important one. But we'll start with number one is we talk about evidence-based practices. And that's really big. Like, are they using things that are supported by evidence? But here's where I'm going to give a twist on all these. They might say they practice evidence-based or that they do evidence-based stuff. But are they practicing what they preach? Are they saying they're person-centered, but the person doesn't seem included? Are they saying they're doing motivational interviewing and they're more so wanting their patients or clients to meet them where they're at versus meeting their clients and patients where they're at? So when you talk about evidence-based practice, how can a place describe or show that that is what they're doing? And not just by listing it. We can all list different things that's evidence-based. That's not difficult to do. That's not a challenge. Anyone can put up a website and throw down some evidence-based practices for substance use and say that's what they offer. But I'm, I'm looking at more of, is this what's applied? Ask more about how it's used. Where is it used? That's a really important question because there's, there's definitely times where what, what is said and what is done are incongruent. Number two is person-centered. You know, the big question with that is like, but does it include the individual person? Are there things being done, decisions being made that's excluding the individual person? Is the individual person themselves being considered as opposed to everyone in, in general? Are we looking at individual strengths? Are we looking at individual resources? Are we looking at decision-making for this person that's in front of us and everything that they have as opposed to generalizing and categorizing everyone together? So they may say they're person-centered. And I, you're probably not going to find anyone that doesn't say that. But a great question would be is how often is the person included? What say does the person have in their treatment and the decisions that are being made? How is the person involved? So it might be person-centered, but making sure it includes the individual as much as they can. And it doesn't mean everything. There's going to be times where there's meetings, discussions, supervision, staffing, where that's not always going to be this person, but are there attempts to make sure this person is involved in their treatment, decision-making regarding their treatment, input into their treatment? Number three, licensed and trained professionals. The big thing with this is 
do they practice that way? Are they really with the scope of practice with their licensure, with their training, with their credentials? There's nothing wrong with looking at letters behind a name and asking what does that mean? Or if if a weird response would be is if you had some issue or there's some problem going on and someone was kind of shrugged it off as like, oh yeah, I'm a counselor, I can take care of everything. There's, I don't believe there's one person that can just be the do-all for everything that, that someone is dealing with. That That's why there's different specialties, different trainings, different, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, you know, it's important to look at this person's license this way. This person has trained. What are their training? And is that what they, they practice? Does it seem like they're practicing some other things or that that is not in alignment with what you think you need or what you think a loved one needs? There's no problem with wanting to make sure that the individuals who are providing care are licensed and trained the right way. I think we would all want that if we were going somewhere else. We wouldn't want to go somewhere for a health issue and have someone say, you know, yeah, I can, um, oh yeah, I can do that too, even though they might not have any training with it. Or they might say, yeah, it's kind of just like this too, even though it might be nothing near what that is. We wouldn't make that type of decision for something like our health or some other area, but we don't want to be blind to it when it comes to you know substance use mental health all that stuff um you know making sure that what people are licensed to do and what they're trained to do and to ask about it to have them share a little bit about that i think is absolutely within a a client's or a patient's right to do if they're getting treatment from them the fourth one's a really important one. I mean, they're all important, but this one is collaboration with other providers. So do they have collaborations with other providers in the field or other providers that are not in the same field, but might be something where other people like your your client or patient needs help with? So maybe... Housing might be an example. Maybe they're homeless. Do they have any collaborations with community providers that could help with that? Do they have someone that they could connect you with? Or is it simply like a, well, you'll have to go figure that out. Or you can go do this. You know, is there connections that they have with the community? But the the more important thing isn't just do they have community supports, but do they support other professionals? Do they, um, when it gets brought up, maybe a, a, a place, maybe a certain type of therapy, do they seem to support it or do they kind of shoot it down? I think it's really important that when you're doing 
any type of providing treatment that when there's other people involved and as long as they are licensed, they are evidence-based, all that type of stuff, that you should be supportive of other providers. So someone tells me that they want to consider EMDR and I don't do an EMDR. Am I someone that would support them looking into that? Would I help them find someone who could do that? Or would I be someone that kind of is negative about it? Maybe I put it down. Maybe I say EMDR is just kind of like some hocus pocus, or I call it the new fad. You know, maybe they say they're good, they want to go to a meeting in the community, and do I say, all right, let's look at some lists. Let's get you there. Let's do this. Or do I say, well, do you really want to go there and call yourself an addict? Do you want to be alongside some of those um, big book thumpers, as people say? You know, that's where I think there needs to be a little bit more of like professional courtesy and accountability with supporting other professionals who are doing other things to help as well. Might not be what we do, might not be what we're licensed to do, trained to do, might not be what our specialty is, might not be what our program can even offer. So when other professionals are involved, does a treatment pr- program not only know some or help you to go there, but are they supportive? To me, if anyone says anything that is evidence-based, supported, and there's nothing that I don't know about them previously or whatnot, I am going to encourage them to find out more, to inquire. How can we get you an appointment? Do you have the phone number that you can call? Do you have a meeting list? What's your plan to get there? Rarely ever am I going to knock down what another person is doing to try to help the same people we are helping. So these these four important ones, evidence-based practices, person-centered, licensed and trained professionals, in collaboration with other providers. This really leads to a big buildup to what I call the gold standard. Would you send your family member there for help? That is the one that holds all those others together, in my opinion. It is the most unofficial one you will ever receive. It is often asked at times to other people, like would you, we do surveys, you talk with some people, you know, would you recommend a family member or loved one to receive treatment here? But it's not something that's like common among professional standards. I worked at a place and eventually left it because it it ultimately became somewhere that I wouldn't send a family member or loved one to get help. You know, someone above me even identified they wouldn't go there and they wouldn't send a family member there. And right there, that became such a moment of clarity that I don't I don't want to work for a place where we don't practice that level of gold standard of treatment 
sending someone to where you would want your loved one to get help. And I preach this a lot in places that I work and people that I work with that that is really when it comes down to it, we should try to provide a quality of treatment that any of us would want to send someone that we're concerned about or love to this type of treatment program. That's the accountability that we should hold ourselves to to providing that quality of care. Now, there are three things I want you to remember when it comes to like treatment that you are receiving regardless of how it looks and where it's located. Number one is client's rights. Never forget your client's rights. You know, you come into treatment, you sign, or are given client's rights that you have while receiving treatment. If you never have, that's a big problem. And that's something you should ask for like ASAP. But at any point you believe the client's rights were violated or they are not being incorporated into quality of care, you have resources and options. You can reach out to client's rights specialists and other resources to protect your rights. Do not forget about them after signing them the first day. That should be one of your regular at-hand go-to resources to protect your rights as a client getting treatment. The second thing is hold treatment providers accountable to what they promote. I know it sounds intimidating and like, what can I do? But if you believe a program is saying one thing and acting another, or they are talking about doing it one way and when it comes to application, it's entirely another, you know, speak out about it. Have a dialogue with your providers. Ask to speak with supervisors and other resources about it. If I'm saying we are a provider that focuses on client or patient-centered and we implement something that seems to go against that, I'd want to know about it. I want to hear about how it goes against something we said we are all about. And ultimately, you have that choice. And you can make that accountability two places if you can when it comes to what's available that's tricky so you do have a right to choose a treatment that you want to go to in most cases the challenge outside of it being like court order probation order something like that is not everyone has all the opportunities we're fortunate enough where in you know south East Wisconsin, like we have quite a bit of treatment providers and I would have no problem informing someone that they have a right to choose what treatment they believe is best for them. If they don't think we're doing it, where do you think it is? First of all, I'd want to know what can we do to make it better. But also if someone's not happy with somewhere, they can make a choice to go somewhere else. In most cases, it's not a guarantee there's there are challenges with what's available it could be with what's being allowed with a court order so it's not that easy but your right to choose does hold some places accountable and if you are talking about leaving i would hope that a place tries to make amends or to fix what's not working to address the issue And not just simply kind of, okay, go ahead, leave. If you don't want to do treatment here, 
you can go somewhere else. No, we should be trying to retain people. Patient retention is key. One of the best ways for us to do that is to be held accountable. The third one is the gold standard. Remember the gold standard of treatment. The standard that might not be mentioned on a website, it's probably not going to be on a a program pamphlet. You're not going to sign it on intake papers. Uh, Even on a professional review of treatment programs or standards. But this is one to, I think, really be that that foundation point that holds all the other ones together is this program where you'd want to send someone you love if they had a problem with their substance use. Would you want to send this person here, your loved one, if they were dealing with a mental health crisis? I think that is something everyone should keep in the back of their mind about a program they are attending, a program they are starting, a program they are considering, a program that you are working in, a program that you are running, and so on and so forth. That should be the quality of treatment we are all attempting to establish for people is that we would want our very loved ones to be able to go to a program like that because we believe that's where they're going to get the best quality of care they can. If you think about it, it I wish it was easier like to find some way of making that, finding treatment, knowing what you're going to get out of it, what it has. It's just not easy to do it it's just really not some of the the greatest stories that i've had come from clients and patients um they're never expected sometimes it comes from some of the things that you never thought would be something great um sometimes there's something that's going on with with a a a client or a patient that you never know would have happened if it was in a different circumstance. So where it's located and how it looks is a part of that that journey. But what goes on inside is really what fills all of that narrative and fills in, you know, like scene to scene of what happens when they are trying to get help for their substance use. So it's a challenge, but I think knowing regardless of where you go, these are some things that you can can use to continuously measure the quality of services. Not just when you walk in, not just when you leave, but continuously look at the quality of services that a place is providing. Hopefully by listening to this episode, you'll have learned that Treatment is not all about how it looks and where it's located. You can learn that by the five pillars of quality for treatment providers. There are some incredible programs out there helping people who need it. If you like what you heard, if you were able to take something away or 
wanted to give some feedback, it is all welcomed. Please visit any of the platforms where the podcast is available and leave a rating and review. It's always great to hear from listeners, as well as if you learn something in the episode and something think that maybe it could help or benefit someone else, you know, giving it a, a rating and a review helps bring more attention to the podcast and recognize it among listeners. It is greatly valued and also appreciated. As always, thanks for listening.